some ways than all those city names. But uh, he's really showing the reason why God's bringing the judgment against his people. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and then seize them, and houses and take them away. They rob a man of his house, a man of his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am praying against this family of calamity, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. On that day they will take up against you a talk, and utter a bitter lamentation, and say, We are completely destroyed. He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To the apostate he apportions our fields. Therefore you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Now you know, it's really important for the prophets to identify the cause of the destruction. If they didn't do that, Assyria comes through and conquers Israel, what might they think is the reason? God wasn't strong enough to protect them. That's exactly right. You know, the Assyrians got, Assyrian gods got the better of their gods. Or, if they were more secular, well, you know, it's the military strategy, it's the weaponry, you know, it's this or that. That wasn't it at all. And the prophets clearly identify, here's what the problem is. The problem is their sins. Now, what were they doing, verse 1? Yes. Evil acts begin with evil thoughts. And where are they when they're scheming these things? In bed, they're lying awake, plotting what they're going to do. And when do they do it? What, do you, what can you tell about these guys? That's exactly right. They aren't sluggards. You know, they, they, get, they get up early to do their evil. You know, isn't that a shame? You know, you appreciate people who, who you know, are diligent and, and uh, you know, set goals and, and get up to achieve them, except these are the wrong goals. You know, there's no lying in bed for these guys when there's work to be done. Uh, they get up as soon as it's morning, and, uh, and, and what do they do? Yeah, they grab people's property and their houses, and they rob him. What would you say is motivating these guys? Greed. Greed, absolutely. And they have the power of their hands in the end of verse 1. In other words, some people have enough power, connections, resources, they can pretty well do what they want to. And these guys had the power to get it done, the cloud or whatever. And so they were probably through legal maneuvers or through fraud or maybe even through violence were grabbing people's fields, their houses, you know, whatever they wanted, they were taking and getting. Do you, would, are you surprised that God was not too happy with that? No, that doesn't really come as a shock to you, does it? <laughs> you know, so, um, as a result of this plotting, this scheming of theirs, 
Verse 3, what does the Lord say? That's exactly right. And what's he planning? Disaster. Now that, this is very interesting to me. The word disaster or New American Standard is calamity in verse 3. It's the very same word that was used in verse 1 for evil. Now, it's used sometimes for moral evil. Sometimes it's used for just a, a terrible disaster. They plotted evil. God will plan evil against them. He's going to pay them back for what they had done. Of course, that's God's right to do that. He does take vengeance. And he says, you're not going to be able to get away from it. And so what is he going to do to them in verse 4? He's going to take away their, their inheritance and their fields. Exactly. What had they done? Rob people's fields. They're going to get it done to them. He's going to exchange the portion of my people, remove it from them. He's going to apportion the fields to other people, and you won't have anybody stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Now, that goes back to the original distribution of the land. Who presided over that? Do you remember? Joshua. And how was the land divided up? What process did they use to decide who got what? By lot. By lot. And so it's the idea of when they come back into the territory again, these guys who've been grabbing people's land, nobody will be there to get a lot for them. Their descendants won't be able to participate. And so those who rob people's land, God's going to take it away from them and never give it back. I think that's the idea. You reap what you sow. God was very unhappy with their greedy, uh, greediness in this, and he was going to take all that stuff away from them. I'm not sure I completely understood it when I read it, but wasn't there a section when the land was originally divided that said that they couldn't redistribute That is exactly right. The only thing they could really do with their land was to long-term lease it until the year of Jubilee, when it was supposed to revert back to the original owners or their family. So they were not supposed to sell the land or give it away or whatever permanently because it was the Lord's land that was supposed to stay in those families. And you remember that created conflict sometimes. You remember somebody who got badly um, badly treated because they refused to sell their land? Naboth couldn't sell the family vineyard that God has given. What happened to him? Yeah, he was stoned. Wasn't just him either. Remember who else was stoned with him? His family. You don't find that out in 1 Kings 21. It's in 2 Kings 9 that it says that his sons also. Because obviously, what do you do just to stone him? That his sons would inherit. Get rid of the whole family. And Ahab was able to take over the vineyard. But, but the, I suspect the reason Naboth wouldn't sell is because he's not supposed to. It's supposed to stay in the, the family. So that was the way God designed it. The whole idea of the land 
the Israelites did not continue to maintain. But the idea was supposed to be they really didn't own the land. It was God's land. They were just living in it as those God allowed to live in his land. Now they pretty quickly began to think it was their land and they could do whatever they wanted to with it, but that wasn't really true and that's not at all the way God looked at that. Other comments and questions? Okay. Alright, um, 6 to 11. Do not prattle, you say to those who prophesy, so they shall not prophesy to you. They shall not return insult for insult. You who are named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of Jehovah restricted? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe with the garment from those who trust you as they pass by, like men returned from war. The women of my people you cast out from their pleasant houses. From their children you have taken away my glory forever. Arise and depart, for this is not your rest. Because it is defiled, it shall destroy. Yes, with utter destruction. If a man should walk in a false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would be the prattler of this people. So... What were they telling Micah? Quit preaching. Why did they want him to quit preaching? So negative. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He's so negative. (laughs) Why would they view his preaching as so negative? Preaching against what they were doing. Exactly. Everybody thinks preaching is negative if it steps on their toes and shows what they're doing is wrong. And so they wanted him to quit speaking out. You know, they, they didn't want Micah meddling in their affairs. They were annoyed by his whole attitude. Well, he says, if they do not speak out concerning these things, Reproaches will not be turned back. Do you understand what he's saying by that? What happens if Micah and people like Micah don't preach? And woe to them for not preaching. Woe to them for not preaching. And the destruction will still come. Destruction will still come, and what's the only chance for the people? Repentance. You know, it's like, we miss, we miss this whole idea. It's like the blame we put on the guy who gives us the bad news. It's like blame on the doctor. Because the doctor told you you've got cancer. It's not the doctor's fault, for crying out loud. You know, do you want the doctor to tell you, oh, you're fine. You know, we did all the tests, they all came back negative, you're fine. If that's not the truth, is that what you want the doctor to tell you? Well, it would make you feel better, wouldn't it? <laughs> sort of. What would be the problem with a really super nice doctor who doesn't want to ever give anybody bad news? What would be the problem with that kind of doctor? He'd run out of patience. <laughs> <laughs> right. You wouldn't get the treatment. You know, it would be worse for you. 
you know, you don't want to hear bad news, but if it's the truth, you want to know it. You know, you don't want to hear preaching of people who always just try to make you feel good, who want to make sure that it's really positive and optimistic, and you always leave just really feeling encouraged, if what you need is rebuke to repent. Now, I know it's more pleasant to hear something encouraging, but the truth is the truth. I mean, you know, God's judgment is God's judgment. I don't care whether you hear about it or not. It's not going to change it. So it's so short-sighted to not want to hear the truth and to try to shut the people up who will teach us the truth. Think about this application for a minute. What happens when, I don't know, you have done something and you know it might be wrong and you might need to do something about that that you really don't want to do and you really don't want to hear that it's wrong so you go to somebody for advice who do you go to for advice? person's going to tell you that you're okay yes, how many times do you pick the person who you think will make you feel better and not the person who you think who will really give you the advice God would want you to have. That tells you a lot about somebody. Who do they turn to? Do they go to the people they think will be objective and will hurt their feelings if they need to? Do they go to their best friend who never says anything that's negative? You know, we ought to want the truth because if not, reproaches aren't turned back. If not, we never really hear the thing we need to hear. So, you know, they tell him not to speak out, but he says, man, if, 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 if these guys don't speak out, well, there's no hope. There won't be any repentance. Comments and thoughts about that idea? We talked about that a minute. <laughs> Russ? Didn't they get in trouble with at least a few of the other minor prophets were doing a study in the church in Bloomington. Um, didn't they get in trouble quite a few times over telling the prophets to be quiet? Sometimes they did. Yeah, and sometimes God, God was very unhappy with rejection of the message of the prophets. I don't know if you're thinking about something specific. I am, but I can't remember okay. what it was. What, what happened to Um... It was just within the list of things that they had done wrong. They oh, reject yeah. prophets and oh, yeah. the priests were corrupt. Oh yeah, that's that's we'll see that a lot. Yeah, yeah, a lot of times the God will say, "I see you prophets over and over and over again, and you wouldn't listen, and you mistreated them." And even in the New Testament, Jesus sometimes talks about how they rejected the prophets. Now they're rejecting him. And he's kind of going right along the same line. Stephen said that in Acts seven. So. God gets upset when he sends messengers and people don't listen. <laughs> so, is it being said, verse 7, O house of Jacob? Now here's, here's what they were saying. Here's, here's the false prophets. Is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? Now do you understand what the other side was saying? 
Oh yes, God, such a loving God. He's so gracious. Oh, God wouldn't be a God to judge you. God's a God who loves you. That that's always what they they often say. Well, well, we He's our God. We're His people. You know, they try to present an image of God that eliminated the side of His wrath and His judgment. Now, is it true that God is a loving, gracious, patient God? Yes, it is. Is it true that He's a God of punishment and justice and wrath? Yes, it is. And if you don't see the whole picture of God, you got a problem. We need the whole thing, right? Uh, the more I talk to people, especially those in denominations, I learn. I think that some people, a lot of people think that love and tolerance is are synonyms. You know what I mean? They act like, they act like, I mean, love means you know that you just accept it sexually, that you just accept people the way they are. You know what I mean? And that's not what love is. But that is exactly what people have been taught, and that's exactly what they think. Yeah. They don't usually think it when it comes to physical danger. You know, you wouldn't think of love and tolerance as being the same thing if somebody was uh, unknowingly in a house that was on fire. Well, I don't want to hurt their feelings, you know. I don't want to upset them, you know. <laughs> Things like that, you know. But but I re- it reminds me of, uh, is it? I think it's Philippians 1, isn't it? That uh, I pray that... Uh, your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. That's uh, Philippians 1, 9, and 10. God wants us to have more and more love, but love that's regulated by knowledge and discernment so we'll approve the things that are excellent. Not just a tolerant indulgence that is, you know, happy with anybody doing anything. You really love somebody, you'll warn them when they're in danger. And so that the prophets were the one, the true prophets are the ones who loved them. The false prophets are the ones who didn't. The loving doctor tells you what you've got. The doctor who doesn't love you make you feel good and let you not seek the treatment you need. So he says, This is God's answer. Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly. (laughs) They weren't walking uprightly. God does bless the upright. He is patient and loving to the person who does what he says. Their wrong concept of God led to their misbehavior. If you think God never punishes, then you probably won't live right. They missed the part about God's blessings come to the upright. And they thought it was just because they were Israel. Uh, so, he says, here's what you've been doing. Look at verse 8. What were they doing? Becoming to God. Not only to God, but also to Yes. They greedily preyed on unsuspecting passers-by. Remember, they're just trying to get anything they can, so they ambush people who are traveling and grab their stuff. Who else were they taking advantage of? End of verse 8 and also in verse 9. End of verse 8, who is it? In other words, yeah, exactly. 
the veterans. Here these are the people who laid their lives on the line for the nation and they're taking advantage of them and robbing them. And then in verse 9, who is it? The women, they're evicting from their houses and taking advantage of them. Sometimes women don't have, you know, and especially in those societies, the same, you know, clout, the same resources, etc. So they were easier to take advantage of sometimes legally. And so they were evicting them. Um, so, verse 10, what is God going to do to them? And what else? What does he tell them to do? Exactly! He's evicting them out of his land. They evicted the women out of their houses. He said, arise and go. You're out. And he does. He sends the Assyrians in and he takes them away. And uh, uh, because of their, their uncleanness, he brings destruction, a painful destruction. So God was going to give them the punishment that their sins deserve. This is a really powerful, powerful book on those things. Comments and questions through 10 now. No. Um, I think a couple verses that go along really well. This is Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. It says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as the Father is son of his life. So, true love corrects and disciplines. If you don't love, you don't bother. Good point. Sarah. In verse 9, are the children also being prayed upon? I think perhaps the idea is the women with their children. Yeah, that, that's the way I interpret that. But if, if not, yes. But uh, I think maybe saying the women and, and their children are taking away their inheritance. Peter. And the, the statement from their children, you've taken away my glory forever. It's not just you've taken away what they have, but you have destroyed from them any concept of a good God. You've just shown them evil, and that's all they know. That's all they have seen in this world. It's, it's a wounding of the spirit. Good point. So it's, it's very devastating what they were doing, and God sees it that way. Other thoughts? This concept of correction hits home with us very well, because we're so leery to correct others, which is likely so, because we need to be careful of feelings, and we need to understand and come to people lovingly. But how, how many times do you hear a brother, how many times do you say, well, I don't want to tell them what's wrong, because that might alienate them, which I understand, but Sometimes you need to tell them, brother, you're sinning. Hell awaits you if you don't change this. And a lot of times we don't have the strength or the courage to go to someone and take them aside lovingly and say, you're doing wrong, I really care for you. And try to help them out. Absolutely. We're more worried about somebody's feelings than their eternal destiny. <laughs> that, that doesn't make a lot of sense when you look at it that way. Maybe we're more worried about ourselves than them. We don't want them to be unhappy with us more than we don't want them to be lost. I think that's what it is for me a lot of times. Look. There's a guy that I heard say one time in a devotion about uh, talking to our friends and neighbors. He said, we, sometimes we care more about our friendships than we do about our friends. Yes. Uh, that's a good like, one. 
if, if we really cared enough for them, if we really were true fans of them, we wouldn't have to try to, to be able to try and speak to them about what they're doing wrong, because if we truly are committed, then we care more about their soul than we do about our feelings. Excellent point. That's a very good point. We prove we're self-focused, and we don't really care about them. Yes. I think it's interesting that we think about how people are going to feel. You think about how God must feel in all this. I don't think he's sitting up there laughing. I've been waiting on my children to mess up so I can smack them around. You almost can hear the regret in his tone that I've got to do this. He's let it go on so long he just can't take it anymore. But it was a point brought up by someone when they're talking about preaching to other people who said, I don't want to offend somebody telling them they're wrong. I think on the day of judgment, they're going to be a little bit more upset when they know someone in the room knew they were living wrongly and didn't do anything about it. When they know for all eternity that someone could have spoken up and helped them out and did not do that. But I think that's going to upset them a whole lot more than someone walking up and saying, and saying that they've done something wrong. What would you want someone to do with you? If you were, were on the wrong path, you were, you were not pleasing the Lord, would you like for somebody to show you? Yes. You'd probably like for them to do that, you know, in a, with a good attitude, with a, with a concern and, and kindness. But you'd want them to warn you, wouldn't you? Now, sometimes we might honestly have to say no, and that really shows we've got a problem. But I think for most of us, we'd say, yeah, we would. Why wouldn't you do that to others? You know, why wouldn't you tell that? And that convicts me as well. You know, if I were, if I were a lost sinner, you know, I'd want somebody to tell me, teach me the gospel. And yet we don't have the urgency about offering even to help people that we should. To help people know the Lord that we should. And, and again, I mean, you know, for me it's too much selfishness. It's too much thinking about, well, they may think I'm, I'm stupid or, you know, I'm fanatical or whatever. And, uh, really, it's just a lack of love. We don't love others. Yes? Another possibility of when we might hesitate is because we may be afraid that we would do it wrong. Or we might not be, someone could do it better. And that brings to mind the parable of talent. And what what we have, do we share it? Do we lay that seed so it can be watered later? Um, don't be afraid because we might not <coughs> do what you can. Yes, that's exactly right. After all, does God only use the most talented, most capable people to do His work? Did He choose the uh, most decorated soldier to slay the giant, and you know, so forth and so on? Uh, you know, and, and would we take that as a physical parallel? If, if, if you saw somebody, you know, who was, you know, in, in terrible trouble physically, you know, would you say, I don't know, maybe, maybe you see somebody drowning. You're not the best swimmer. You may not be the best person to pull them out, but there's nobody else there. Would you try? You know, it's not like we're keeping somebody else from doing it. Somebody else comes along and do it better, fine. But right now, they're got to put us together, do what we can. So, I think it's again coming back to the idea that who are we focused on when we're talking to people? The idea I can't do it well enough. Well, the Lord, like you said, Lord, you 
that people who are less, you know, talented than we are in all times. And again, it's, it's where we put our focus. We're more focused on how we feel and how they feel. We're focused on how much we can say instead of what the Lord can do through us. I think, you know, it's where we put our focus is where we put, you know, where we put our confidence in. Or do we put our confidence in ourselves and our abilities? If so, we're going to be very disappointed. And if so, we're going to have a very disappointed judgment, disappointed judgment day. If we put our confidence in the Lord and what He can do through us, we can only be as encouraging as He wants us to be, no matter what we say. They will get out of it what the Lord wants them to get out of it. Put your confidence in the Lord. Amen. John. Another of the Proverbs, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Amen. Excellent proverb. Other thoughts? Um, to go along with what Shane was saying, I was going to give uh, John 15, 5, when Jesus says, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I am him bears much fruit, for without me, nothing. So, just need to remember that, you know, Jesus is working for us. Amen. <coughs> so, look at 11. If a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor. He would be spokesman to this people. <laughs> What's he say? <coughs> Absolutely. You get a guy who's a windbag and who tell him a bunch of lies and talk to him about their drinking and you know having fun and partying. That's the guy that will like president or preacher or whatever. You know, that's the guy they want to listen to. They chose the prophets they listened to by whether or not they told them what they wanted to hear. That's the point. You know, people all the time talking about, well, I'm trying to find a church home where I feel comfortable. You know, well, I guess it's nice to feel comfortable, but that's really not the point. The point is, where is God honored and His will done? Now, where I feel comfortable. So, like sometimes, though, it's better to try to where you're not comfortable. Because they're actually helping you see the things you don't think about. Yeah. Too great a comfort level is probably not a good thing. Where we're comfortable, where we are, we're probably in trouble. Right. Amen. Patrick. Well, in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, clearly states in verse 30, our God who is our comfort. If we're looking to any other place for comfort, that's a disrespect to our God. Good point. If we are looking for a congregation or a person or any source to satisfy our desire for comfort, we are denying God's power. When it's especially bad when we want to be comforted by things that are directly the opposite of what the Lord reveals and what His will is. You know... That, that shouldn't comfort us. Why does it comfort us to find somebody who says we're okay? You know, you take somebody who's trying to justify something. You know, somebody's in an unscriptural marriage or something like that. They try to find somebody who will tell them, some preacher who will say it's okay. Well, so? <laughs> that just, well, you know, is on the day of judgment, are you going to be able to say to God, well, well preacher so-and-so said this was okay. You know, people will sometimes do that. Well, will you tell me if this all right? Well, what if I do tell him it's okay? Does that help anything? 
it's much better if somebody says, well, you show me the Bible. What's, what's the truth about this? I want to see for myself what God's will is. Help me to understand this. Not, you know, will you tell me it's okay? There are plenty of false prophets who will tell you anything's okay. If that's what you're looking for, they're, they're, they're there and uh, they're for hire. You know, and he'll tell us that in the next chapter. But, uh, but what we ought to want is God's message, even if it's painful. A lot like modern day in Micah's day, don't you think? Other comments and questions? Why? To go along with the uh, worshiping God and feeling comforted in certain uh, congregations and stuff, uh, you know, I talk to people in nominations, you know, and they, they say, you know, well, I really like going there, you know, and I, I tell them, does God like going there? You know, and I, and I talk with them about things and say, I said, uh, you know, the whole point of going to worship is you're worshiping God, you know, and you want to make sure you do it in truth and spirit, you know, 424. Uh, and I talk to them and I say, you know, I hear people say, well, you know, I talk to them about my congregation and they're like, well, you guys don't have daycare. Or, yeah, I've heard stories where they're like, well, you guys don't have a softball team. You know, and all this stuff, and I'm like, Jesus didn't come to start a softball team or to sell pies or anything, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's like, and to set the soul, you know, and so when we work with God, we need to make sure we're going to worship God. Not, I mean, it's good that we feel edified, you know, when we go to worship and then we, you know, feel good when we're there and we're leading and stuff, but the main focus is, you know, we're there to worship our, our Father in heaven. Well, the question is, what's God's will, not what do I want? Their issue was, what do they want, not what God's will is. So they found the people who tell them what they wanted. What are we looking for? What we want or what God says? Do you think there could be a tie to the false prophets saying something that's comforting and saying something that tries to tell them they're okay and the wine and the alcohol? Because people turn to wine and alcohol so often saying, oh, I'm okay, this will make me feel better. Could there be a tie there? Maybe I'm just reading too much into this. Maybe, maybe, maybe so. Yeah, maybe so. I think the wine and alcohol may almost be just kind of like a, a metaphor for, you know, they just tell you to live it up. They tell you to have fun in whatever way that the world would do that. And, uh, you know, you, you, I mean, I've heard people say, you know, they like their church because you can do this there. You can do that. It's okay to drink in my church. It's okay to do this or that in my church. You know, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's the whole idea that, okay, we're trying to find the church that will let us do what we want to. It's kind of like, well, well, with my doctor, I don't have cancer. You know, I found one that said I was okay. Well, you know what? We don't think that way when it comes to our physical health. We're not just looking for the doctor who finally tell us what we wanted to hear. You know, you don't find many doctors like that. Because they would soon not only run out of patients because of the uh, mortality rate, but you know people people want to live, and they've got enough sense to realize that's really not what you're looking for. Yeah, you'd like to hear good news, but no, you don't want to go to the doctor who just tells everybody what they want to hear. You know, we have more sense when it comes to our body than when it comes to our soul. Yeah, sir. The good news that the doctor can tell you is. You have cancer, and there's a treatment and a cure. 
So in the same way, that's a different look at the good news that we're supposed to be looking for. Absolutely. And the comfort that we're supposed to be providing. Exactly. And in looking for a congregation, it's not where we're comfortable, but it's where God is comfortable. Is God comfortable in this congregation among these people? Is, or has he been evicted from the, the house? Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yes. I think the way you talked about it, they said at my church this is okay. Is that okay in God's church? Sure. I think we try to do it and say, look, he'll be the spokesman of this people. It didn't say he'll be the spokesman for God. This is the Lord's message, and it's not whether or not the preacher's happy, it's God is not happy. Yeah. When Micah began the book, he said the word of the Lord. I'm sure he'd love to be able to stand up there and say, everything's great, let's throw a party. He's not happy about this either, but it's what God says to do. Exactly. We really don't have options. You know, we shouldn't think we do. When we teach, it needs to be the Lord's message. And when we listen, we need to seek for the Lord's will. That's got to be our focus. Sure. Uh, going back to the doctor parallel, I think a lot of times we're, we can't see past the pain to want the cure. It's, it's the idea of, why well, do I don't have the pain of knowing that I have the cancer? I think a lot of times as Christians, we're so afraid of pain that we, we often don't want to deal with pain. We just push it away or don't deal with it. We, should, we don't have to deal with it. We, don't, we, don't, we can't see past the pain enough to get find the cure. We think about our short-term feelings, not the long-term benefit. Make you feel good this moment at the expense of what it's going to cause me later. We've got to think about um, not be short-sighted, but be thinking about the long view. Everyone we know that not dealing with the pain is only going to cause the worse. Absolutely. If we deal with it now and get over the pain to find the cure, there will be no more pain, but instead what we seem to want to push away because it's more comfortable than all Little we know that it's going to drag it out for the rest of all Yeah, when you get a splinter in your finger, it's better to endure the pain and get it out rather than letting it in, get infected and fester and all that. It's going to be more painful later. Other thoughts? Good comments. Right, that's the judgment section of part one. The salvation section of part one is very short. That's verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you. Okay. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, uh, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord of their head. Now, the, the, the true prophet also preaches a message that includes salvation and blessing. However, it's the true salvation and blessing. And who's it for in verse 12? The remnant. The remnant. There is blessing coming, but not for the whole people, just for the remnant that's purified and purged by the judgment and, and ends up being the, the true people of God. And God was going to put them together like sheep in a fold. And there was going to be, verse 13, the breaker who would break out and go before them and be their king at their head. The breaker refers to like uh, one that would, would take the lead and kind of break through the gate, break through the fence, or break through whatever. 
and, and would be able to lead them. And I think he's talking about Christ. That Christ would be the, the breaker who would go out before them, who would become their king, who would become at their head. Um, and, and so ultimately, the Lord was going to provide salvation for his true people. It was the people who would have the Lord at their head. You know, the people who would look to him for their guidance. Um, so, there is salvation, but it's for a remnant under the kingship of the Lord. Comments and questions? Going back to the idea of, of a prophet being obligated to speak the truth, whether it was what the people wanted or not, even if it was to the prophet's hurt. Um, just, I'll say that some of the most respect I've ever gained for the Word of God has been the times where I didn't want to stand by it. Mm-hmm. was when I could see that it was going to be extremely unpleasant, basically, to have to stand by it. There have been times I've told people, I want to be wrong in this. I want you to show me where I'm wrong in this in the Bible. I don't want to be right about this. If you can show me, I'll be more than willing to succeed in that. But, uh, but you can see how, in talking about the ultimate salvation, that is a hope that that gives us the strength to stand by the word, no matter how bad it seems, no matter how hurtful it seems at the time. There's still that remnant that has the salvation. We need to be with the Lord. It probably wasn't pleasant for Micah. His message was not well received, but he's much better off being with the Lord. Other thoughts or comments on chapter two? Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. I said, I said, Hear now 